Hey, I want to begin today with a question. And that question is this. Who is the hardest person for you to love? Not like a theoretical, like this kind of person. I'm wondering like physically, somebody you know, somebody you've come in contact with, who is the hardest person for you to love? And on your handout that's in that bulletin that Clovis mentioned, there's a space next to that question where you could write that person's name. Now, if they're sitting on your row, maybe you write it in code so they don't see it. But I want to make sure this isn't just a theoretical conversation. This is an actual real one. I was thinking this week or about what are the kinds of people or what categories do people fit in or what are the reasons why certain people are hard for us to love? And I, I just settled on these four things. I'm sure the list is way longer than this. But there are people in our lives that we disagree with, that we don't see eye to eye with. I'm not going to spend much time on this one because we have no problem with disagreements happening in our culture or country right now. I'll move on to more relevant topics. Wink. There are people who are different from us, people who come from a different place or people come from a different background or people of different values or people who live differently than us. Sometimes that difference makes it hard for us to love them. There are just plain difficult people out there, people that, are, that aren't just, I don't know what it is. They're just difficult to love. They, they lack self-awareness. They have no idea how they come across. They have no idea their voice sounds like nails on a chalkboard and they may get louder. It makes it even worse. And they're just difficult people. And then there's finally disappointment. Sometimes there's a disappointment between us and another person and that makes them hard to love. They disappointed us or they hurt us or they wounded us. Or they betrayed us. And because of that disappointment, it is just so hard to love them. As I was finishing this message on Tuesday, I texted my wife and I said, hey, who is the person I have the hardest time loving? And like, it wasn't, it wasn't even like 30 seconds. She bounced back and she told me the name of a person. And I go, oh yeah, that is totally true. That is that person. And for me, it's that, that last one, disappointment. This person has disappointed me so much that I'm strapping my head around Was this who they were all along and I got duped? Or did they just so radically change that they're unrecognizable anymore? Either way, I've got a person at the top of my sheet that's the person I have a hard time loving. And it's, it's that this is the relationship. This is the person that God really spoke to me about as I was preparing this message to give to you. Last week, Chris Inman shared on Father's Day about the life of Daniel. And this was his big idea. Chris said that to live as an and Christian, we need to avoid compromise while skillfully engaging our community. And Chris challenged us to engage people around us by, by listening to them, by sharing showing them empathy by, by engaging with them and, and not pushing them aside, but hearing their concerns. And all throughout this week, for me, as I was relating to people, I was thinking, okay, how do I show them empathy? How do I listen? How do I engage them? And I watched other people engage people without any empathy, without any listening, without any concern for their concerns. As Chris joked, most of that happened on Facebook, but I did see that again. And it was, it was challenging for me because I think this is the place where this kind of idea, this kind of series comes to home. This isn't just a theoretical conversation. This is a real practical conversation. It even intersects the words of Jesus. In his most famous message, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He went on later to say, 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the taxpayers do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is raising the point for us that it actually isn't that hard to love people you like. Or even love people who are like you. The challenge is to love people who are different from you or you disagree with or who are difficult. He says, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of the message that's really popular. If I posted that on Facebook today, I would get tons of likes and shares. But if I posted love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, it would be crickets. People would just keep scrolling. Because who wants to like that? Much less who wants to do that? Because that's hard to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. That may be the most difficult thing of all. And that is what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about how do we live in this culture and this moment, faithful to Jesus and yet winsome to the people around us. And we're using the stories of Daniel and Esther. And I want to just pause right here and say, before we go on any further, that being faithful to Christ doesn't just have to do with what you believe and your actions, your morality. It has to do with how you treat people too. Being faithful to Jesus isn't just doing what Jesus did. It's treating people the way that Jesus did. And sometimes it's easier to be like Jesus in his morality than it is in his ethics. Sometimes the hardest thing about being faithful to Jesus is loving people the way that he did. Treating them the way that he did. Having the attitude that he did. And we're in the book of Daniel today. And Daniel has some very famous moments. Last week, we looked at how Daniel ate this veggies and water only diet. In a few weeks, we'll look at how Daniel and his friends had to face a fire. And then we'll look at how Daniel had to face down some lions. But there are some places in Daniel that tend to get overlooked. But I think they have some real gems in them. And that's Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 today. So if you have a Bible, a physical one, a digital one, would you open it up to Daniel chapter 2? If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you have a physical one, you'll hit Psalms in the middle, go towards the back, you'll pass books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel is right before Daniel, and you'll be there in the book of Daniel chapter 2. Before we dive into these two places in the book of Daniel, I want to make sure that I let you know that there are 86 verses in these two chapters, and no, we're not covering them all. You're welcome would ruin whatever afternoon plans you had for this summer day. We're not going to hit them all, but I'd encourage you to go back and read everything that's there because there's some great stuff that we just don't have time to get to today. And as we dive into these passages, the big idea that we're going to encounter in this text is this, and I'd encourage you to fill out these blanks in your handout, that and Christians, people who are living faithful to Christ and winsome to culture, and Christians embrace difficult callings, learning to live with grace and truth. If we're going to be faithful to Christ and wisdom to culture, that means we embrace a difficult calling as we learn to live with grace and truth. We're going to begin by reading from the book of Daniel chapter 2 and learning about a dream that the king has. Beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. 
So they came in and stood before the king, and he said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servant the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. Well, then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word to me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. That's a pretty high stakes conversation if I don't say so myself. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and then we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you're trying to gain time. You're stalling, basically. Because you see, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. It's an awesome confession by them. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or any enchanter or any Chaldean. They always ask for the interpretation, not what you're asking for both. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and so he commanded that the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. King's being a little ridiculous, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, what does my dream mean after I tell you the dream? It's another thing entirely to say, hey, tell me the dream I had and tell me what it means. Like, I wonder. I had a dream last night. Want to tell me what it was? Nobody? I mean, how, how would you know? I mean, did I have a dream? And if I did, like, what was it? Like, did it involve the food I ate for dinner? Did it involve my family? Did it involve the past? Did it involve the future? It's this incredible challenge he puts before them. And from this story and another dream we'll look at in a second, I think we can learn some lessons that speak to our lives today. And the first lesson is this. God gives his people difficult callings. God gives his people difficult callings. Now, before we go on, I have to say that these sorcerers, these magicians, these enchanters, these Chaldeans, they aren't all God's people. But Daniel and his friends are. And because of what we looked at last week and the education that these guys had, they're included in this group. And they're not there for this conversation, but the news comes, hey, you're going to die for this too if you don't tell the dream to the king and what it means. And it's this incredibly challenging moment that God kind of thrusts these guys into. It's this incredibly difficult calling. And it runs very counter to the way that we look at how God moves. If you've been around church for any period of time, or if you're new, if you stick around for any period of time, there's this idea you're going to hear about in church from Christian or church people. And it's this idea of the open door. 
This is how we perceive sometimes God's working in our lives. Somebody will say, well, God has just opened this door for me. And what that means in Christianese and kind of Christian vernacular is that there is this thing that's possible that's really easy that God is kind of parting the way for. Therefore, that must be what God wants. Somebody says, well, God has just opened this door. And what that means is that it it has gotten easier and easier for me to get what I wanted all along. And what's interesting is that this idea is a very modern and American idea. And it doesn't at all fit with the lives of the people we read about in this book. See, in America, we perceive that God is at work when things get easier and easier and easier. And when we read this book, we find that God actually shows up and makes things harder and harder and harder. Like, for example, Noah. Here's a word from God. Noah, build a boat. Okay, I've never built a boat before. How long do I have? 120 years. Why am I, why am I building a boat? Because it's going to rain. Um, what's rain? he never seen rain before. That was his calling. Do this for 120 years. You have friends who are building houses and it's taken six, eight, 12 months. This is taking forever. Imagine 120 years. Like somebody who started it in 1900 would still be building it right now. Or Abraham, Abraham, you, you live in the Chaldeans, the area where Daniel lives now. I want you to go and leave and move somewhere else. Okay, God, where am I going? Well, I'll tell you when you, when you get there. I don't know about how that would go at Abraham's house, but at my house, if I came home and said, hey, Jenny, we're moving. Well, where are we going? Well, um, God's going to tell us when we get there. Like, I just wouldn't go home. I would just leave and start going, and eventually she'd find me along the way. Because that just would not go over well. And that, that's just the first 15 chapters of Genesis. There's 65 and a half other books where person after person after person gets a difficult calling from God. And the longer and longer they follow God, the harder and harder it gets. That's why I titled the sermon, It Only Gets Harder. Because in our idea of how God works, it's supposed to get easier and easier and easier. And we forget that God's calling in our lives does not equal the path of least resistance. God's calling in our lives doesn't always equal the path of least resistance. And so if you're going to have a relationship with God, if you're going to follow him, then be prepared for him to call you to hard things. Because that's the precedent we get in this book. It's not people who get easy callings, it's people who get difficult ones. We pick up Daniel's story in verse 14. It says, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Translation, what happened in this meeting that I missed that you're now trying to kill us all? Like, what happened? I missed one meeting and we're all dying. Like, what's the deal here? And in verse 16, it says, Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And so Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. Basically says, hey, king, just set a time. I'll come and tell you your dream. Now, mind you, Daniel doesn't know the dream yet. He just tells him, pick a time and I'll show up and tell you. So Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may know them by their other names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy of the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
And it says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The second lesson we learn from this story is that we can learn to depend on God's mercy. We can learn to depend on God's mercy. I find Daniel just again and again so fascinating because he is so very different than me. You see, when I end up in a tough spot, and I never had somebody come up to say, hey, I'm going to kill you because you didn't tell me your dream. But when I've been in a tough spot before, most of those times, my first response isn't to say, hey, I'll, 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 I'll tell you that, even though I don't know it yet. I don't tend to commit to things I don't know how to solve. But Daniel does. He steps out and says, hey, king, schedule a time. I'll tell you what the meaning of this dream is. I don't know it right now, but when I need to know it, I'll know it. And then he turns to his friends, it says right away, and he tells them, hey, let's seek God's mercy together. Let's turn to God. Those are the first two things he does. Me? I tend to turn to myself. Okay, Scott, how are you going to figure this out? Okay, Scott, how are you going to figure this out? Scott, how are you going to work this out? Question for you. What's your first instinct when things get hard or bad? What's your first instinct when things get bad or hard? Most of us, if we're honest, it's not to put ourselves out in a place that exposes us, and it's not to pray. While we would say that we're worshipers of God and we depend on him, when it comes to crisis, most of us see how self-reliant we are. Between our phones, Google, a Visa card, we try to exhaust all of our options. And eventually, we get around to God. But for many of us, it isn't our first response. And that's the, the beauty of a crisis. A crisis or a difficult or a hard season is like a spotlight. And it reveals the truth about where we actually are. It reveals the truth of, of what's really going on inside of our hearts. And that's why for me, as I was reading this story, I realized, man, on so many occasions, there are a few where I have turned to God immediately and prayed, but the majority are not. There are times where I relied on myself first. And when I couldn't do it, then I finally turned to God. And that provoked in me a question. I said, Scott, is, is prayer your first move or is it your last resort? Do I turn to God first or do I turn to God when I've exhausted every other option? And that's why Daniel's story is so fascinating because his very first move is to depend on God. So much so that when the answer comes, what is the dream and its interpretation? Do you notice what it says? It says that Daniel received a vision in the night. The implication from the text is that Daniel was sleeping. I don't know about you, but if a guy came and told me, I'm going to kill you, I wouldn't be sleeping. Be the last thing I'd be doing. Some of you have much smaller problems than this, and you didn't sleep well last night. Well, Thursday night. Or you didn't sleep well Monday night. And Daniel has been told that he's going to be killed. And how does the vision find him? Sleeping. That has to be because he's learned to depend on God. And that's why I wrote the, mess, the, the, the point there. We can learn to depend on God's mercy because this is not our natural bent. None of us. 
naturally turn to God first. We have to learn that. But we can. And if you say, Scott, I'm, I'm not there right now. I'll be honest. I, I depend on myself more than God. You've got a lot of company in this room. But you don't have to stay there. There are also people in this room over years and decades and crisis after crisis who've learned to depend on God's mercy. And if you make a turn today, you can begin that path. Daniel goes on and he tells the king his dream. He tells him the interpretation of the dream, which involves a a giant statue. We're not going to get into it today. Some of you will be disappointed about that, but this is not an end times series. This is a series about engaging our culture. We'll save that for another sermon series but at the end, of the, mess, the end of the message basically is that the king is not always going to be reigning. Eventually, he's going to die. And his kingdom that he hoped to leave to his children is going to be conquered by a less significant empire. And the king says this to the man, Daniel. He says, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face after hearing this and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. It's like a leadership position, a prefect. Daniel made a request of the king. And so the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. The third lesson we learn is that God is faithful to those who tell the truth to power. God is faithful to those who tell the truth to power. Now let's be really clear on on what's happening here. When you read the Bible, you have to be very clear on what kind of literature it is because the Bible is 66 books written by about 40 different people with a variety of literature. So sometimes what you're reading in the Bible is a specific command or a principle you're expected to do. And sometimes the Bible is just describing something for us and giving us history, not as a model, but just as a story to look at. And this is an example. God is not saying, if you tell the truth to power every time, you're going to get a promotion. Because some of you know that isn't what always happens. You've told somebody the truth they didn't want to hear, and you've not gotten a promotion. Maybe the relationship got worse, not better. And so we have to look at this word faithful and say, what does the word faithful mean? Is God only faithful to you if when you do the right thing, you get a promotion? Is God only faithful to you if when you follow what he's asking you to do, you make more money this year than you did last year? Is God only faithful to you if when you follow him, you end up better than those who aren't following him? Because we live in America today, our idea of faithfulness is connected to our idea of blessing. And one of the things that's hard for me is I I drive around and I see people with these bumper stickers or these license plate holders that say blessed. And I found this meme that sums up my feelings really well here. Why do you never see one of those license plates that says blessed on a car like this? (laughs) On a 1978 Ford Fairmont. Like, why is it only Mercedes, BMWs, and Land Rovers that have the blessed? Why do you never see a gremlin? Or a Yugo? Or a beat-up Kia with a blessed on there? 
because we don't believe that that's God's way. If God was blessing you, you'd have the Mercedes. If God was blessing you and faithful to you, you'd have the bigger house. If God was blessing you and being faithful to you, you would be on vacation right now where your other friends are that you're seeing on Instagram while you're stuck here in Prescott, being a little bit jealous of them. See, all around the world today, there are Christians who are gathering in churches to worship, many of whom make less in a year that you made this last week. And they're standing up and giving testimonies about how God has been faithful to them and how God is blessing them. And here in America, we feel like we're not blessed and God isn't faithful because we're driving this. See, if you only think God is faithful and blessing you, if everything is up and to the right, then you need to look in the mirror and realize that you've allowed the country you've been born into to shape the way you read this book. And your theology is more a function of the country you call home than it is the God that you follow. See, what I love about what Daniel does is he tells the king the truth, but when you, if you go back and read Daniel 2, you don't find any place where Daniel looks down on the king. He doesn't go, hey, king, I'm going to tell you this, but it's just really bad because you've been a bad guy and you just need to shape up. He doesn't speak condescendingly. He doesn't speak arrogantly. He just tells the truth. And it reminded me about a description of Jesus that came in the book of John, chapter 1, where it says, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This has been one of the most popular definitions and descriptions of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. That Jesus was at the same time grace-filled, he was truthful. And he wasn't just a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. He was filled with both. And we struggle with this because most of us tend to fall in one of those categories or the others. How many of you would say, if you were honest, that you're more of a grace person? Raise your hand. You tend to be more of a grace person. Raise your hand. It's okay. There's no right, right or wrong answers here. Okay. I'm more of a grace person. And what that means is that when push comes to shove, my primary concern is being loved. So when given an opportunity to tell the truth, I'm tempted to hedge a little bit because they may not want to hear it. When tempted to deliver a bad piece of news, I will spend 47 minutes giving the context and 30 seconds giving the bad news because I want to be loved. How many of you in the room would say you're a truth person? Raise your hand. Your primary concern isn't being loved it's being right. And so if you feel like you're having to compromise, you just feel this internal angst beginning. Well, the problem is you're not concerned at all with how it comes across. You're just concerned in telling them what they need to hear. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced that because I'm married to someone who's like this. doesn't get a whole lot of, you know, stuff to go down with. It's just the pure, non-unconcentrated, just give it to you. I'm going to tell you where I'm at. I always know, which is awesome. It's just a little bit difficult to swallow sometimes, you know? And here's the thing. That may be how you were born. 
and maybe how you were raised. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and if you claim the title that you're a Christian, which means a little Christ, you no longer have the option of just being a grace person or a truth person. Because you're saying, I follow someone who's both, and I want to be like someone who's both. You can no longer settle for just caring about being loved by people. You have to tell them the truth. You can no longer settle for just being right and being a jerk. Because that isn't Jesus. And if you're going to be a little version of him, you can't just be right. You have to be filled with grace too. And this is where things get interesting. We jump over into a different story involving Daniel. So if you have your Bible open, turn to Daniel 4. And at the time that we have left, I want to talk real quickly about this other dream. In my Bible, the heading says Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. In Daniel chapter 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, if you've got a Bible, a physical Bible, I'd encourage you to circle the words at ease and circle the word prospering. We'll come back to those. I saw a dream that made me afraid, the king said. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So the king sees this dream. It freaks him out. So he calls in his enchanters again. This time he actually tells them the dream. And he says, will you please tell me what it means? And they have no idea. So he calls in Daniel in verse 9. It says, O Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So Daniel, tell me the dream because I know you've done it before. You can do it again. And in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Lesson number four is that God's people view others with compassion. God's people view others with compassion. I have to tell you, I've been preparing the series for a while and preaching in this series, both through Daniel and Esther. And this one verse, Daniel 419 is what sticks out to me the most. Daniel recognizes what the dream is and it's going to be bad for the king. And Daniel's first response is dismay and alarm. The king says, Hey, please tell me the dream. Don't let it alarm you. And Daniel says two things. May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, if you were like Daniel living in your home, a foreign king comes in, conquers you, takes you and your people away, tears you away from everything you've known, puts you in an indoctrination camp to learn the ways of those people, you and your people are going to be enslaved there for 70 years, and you learn something bad is going to happen to that guy like me, you're probably doing a happy dance. Yes, he's finally going to get what's coming to him. And that's not at all what Daniel does. He says, King, I wish this dream was for those who hate you. And I wish the interpretation was for your enemies. What about that person in the beginning of the sermon that you wrote at the top? The person who's hard for you to love. What if you got bad news about them? What if you heard they lost their job? Or they were getting divorced? 
or they had incurable cancer, what would your first response be? Would it be compassion? Would it be this? See, I realized as I was preparing this message that when it came to the person I have a hard time loving, that if I heard that something bad had happened to them, I can't say to you with 100% honesty that I would respond with compassion. That's why being an and person is a difficult calling. Because it's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be loving. We have to be both. And Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I had our team pull me out a little prop today. Because I think many of us struggle with this. Whether you're a, a, a truth person or not, there's places where you're right. You are so right. You are so, so right. And if you would, you would just tell them. You would let them have it. The only problem is no one could hear you. Because when you're can't hear anything. You can be telling them and letting them have it, but all they hear is yelling and noise. If you tell the truth, but you lack love, it doesn't matter. And what's fascinating isn't that Daniel tells the king the truth in a minute. What's fascinating is the way that he tells him. Anybody can be right. Anybody can tell him. You can pull your phone out right now and tell him how bad and wrong I am right now. That's fine. But what Paul says is if you lack love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And those don't change the world. I don't know anybody who came to Jesus because they were scolded into it. Man, I met this guy and he just yelled at me and he just screamed at me and all of a sudden I wanted what he had. I just never had that happen. That's why you can be right and still be wrong. I love what Rick Warren says about the current moment that we're in and the challenges that we face. He says that our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second lie is that to love someone, it means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both of those are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions in order to be compassionate. And Daniel shows this. He is incredibly compassionate to the king. And then he goes on to tell the king really bad news. In a part that we're not going to read today in Daniel 4, he says, King, it's going to get really bad for you. He tells the king, hey, you're ruling right now, but one day you're going to wake up and you're literally going to lose your mind and think you're a cow. You're going to leave the palace. You're going to go out into the field. Your hair is going to grow long and be wet with dew. You're going to eat the grass and this is going to last for seven years. 
You're going to lose it all and not be able to do anything about it until you come to the place where you realize that God is God. Remember that thing I told you, a circle in verse four? The king says, I was at ease in my palace and I was prospering. Many of us get to the place where we think that it was all us and not God. Nebuchadnezzar's seen God move, but he took all the credit for himself and God says, nah. And he brings this judgment on him. And Daniel delivers the message. This is what's going to happen to you. And here's what he says after he delivers that message. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Lesson number five, God longs for all to repent and avoid judgment. God longs for all to repent and avoid judgment. Even this king that Daniel has declared, you're going to have it bad for seven years. Daniel says, therefore, turn from your wicked ways that it doesn't have to go that way. And you say, how would he see that? Doesn't he want the king to get judged? No, what happens is Daniel is looking at the king, not from his perspective, but from God's. And Daniel wants the king to repent. If you, read, if you go on and read, what it says in the scriptures is that God waits 12 additional months. He gives the king an additional year to repent. And when he doesn't, the seven years begin. And again, I find it so fascinating that Daniel isn't jumping for joy with this bad news. He's praying and hoping that the king turns his heart around and it doesn't happen. Last week, Chris Inman shared with us that when he prepares a message, he asks the question, God, where do I have this wrong? God, where am I not seeing this the way you are? And it forced me to ask a question about my heart in this text. And my question was this, God, where is my heart misaligned? God, where is my heart misaligned? Because I already know what would happen if bad news came to that person I have a hard time loving. The question I had to answer was, God, what would I do if they turned? What would I do if they repented? What would I do if they came to me asking for forgiveness? Would I want to pile on? Would I be sad? We just sang amazing grace. That same grace that you experienced was available to Nebuchadnezzar. Because you're no worse or better than he was. And that person you have a hard time loving, that same grace is available to them. Because they're no worse or better than you are. And the only reason you have the relationship you have with God today is because of that grace. And if they turn from where they've been living, that same grace would be available to them. I know you don't like it, but guess what? Somebody didn't like it when you got grace. That's the thing about grace. It offends us. Until we recognize how much we need it ourselves. And when I read this passage, I realized that my heart was so misaligned. And then I needed to learn to see that person the way God did. On the back of your hand, there's a couple of next steps I want to share with you before we go today. And here's the first one. Identify, it should say identify, the person who's hardest for you to love and why it is so difficult to love them. 
Who's it, who is it that you have such a hard time loving and identify why is it so hard? Because until you identify who that person is and why, that peace in your heart can't be changed. That's why honesty before God is so tremendously important because God can't deal with what you won't confess and own. And until you confess and own it, he can't transform it. It's like that piece of bread in the back of your fridge that's moldy and you wonder why your fridge smells so bad. Until you figure out why it smells so bad, you can't pull it out and make it smell better. And in the same way, we have things in our hearts that don't honor God and until we identify them and until we own them, they won't ever change. Number two, identify the direction you lean towards grace or truth and commit to the and path. Which one are you? Are you more of a grace person? Are you more of a truth person? And what would it mean for you to commit that you're going to lean towards the other direction so you can become more of both? You see, if we use our picture for the series, being a a truth person or being a grace person is both within our comfort zones. But to be an and person is in our discomfort zone. And God always calls us from comfort to discomfort as we follow him. To leave what we could do on our own, to follow him into what we can only do in his strength. And then number three, pray this week, asking God to help you see the person you identified and others from his perspective. Once you've named that person and you know who they are, what would happen if every day you said, God, I want to see them the way that you see them. Help me to see them through your perspective. Help me to align my heart with your heart and allow me to see through your eyes. I think the exact same thing that happened for Daniel could happen in you. That you could respond with that same kind of love and mercy and compassion. Yeah, it'd be incredibly difficult, but difficult is what God majors in. And he can teach us to learn to live with grace and truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Daniel and these places that are typically pretty dusty in our Bibles that you're using to to show us the places in our hearts where we're not following you. We're just following our own agenda. God, selfishly, I thank you for revealing in my heart what I didn't want to see this week. For showing me the places where I'm a, clanging symbol for showing me the places where I wanted to hoard grace for myself and not give it to somebody else. Thank you for showing me the places where my heart isn't aligned with yours. I pray today that I now have a lot of company, not a lot of comfort, not a lot of ease, but I pray that we would know that we're not alone that living in this time and place in a way that's true to you is incredibly difficult. It's so much easier to just be a person of grace, God, and and love people and, and not ever tell them the truth and just care about them liking us more than anything else. And it's so much easier to be the person yelling or screaming, defending the truth, but doing so in a way that drives people away. Thank you for the scriptures and the example they they capture us in Jesus. Who shows us we don't have to compromise to be compassionate. So we pray that you'd give us your heart. 
We pray that we'd come to you with honest confession and humility and that you would give us your perspective. That we might mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. God, we're not yet who you've called us to be. But we thank you that you meet us where we are. You heal our sorrows. You cleanse our unrighteousness. And you walk with us as we continue to follow you. May you give us the power to do what feels impossible today. Would you make us more like Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.